I'm going to encourage you now to take a copy of the scriptures and turn to the second psalm, Psalm 2. We began our journey in the Psalms two weeks ago with an overview sermon. We jumped into Psalm 1 last week, and now we turn to the second Psalm. Hear the word of God. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers conspire together against the Lord and against His anointed one. Let's tear off their chains and throw their ropes off of us. The enthroned one in heaven laughs. The Lord ridicules them. Then He speaks to them in His anger and terrifies them in His wrath. I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will declare the Lord's decree. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with an iron scepter. You will shatter them like pottery. So now, kings... Be wise. Receive instruction, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with reverential awe and rejoice with trembling. Pay homage to the Son, or He will be angry, and you will perish in your rebellion, for His anger may ignite at any moment. All who take refuge in Him are happy. This is the Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. My parents owned an old hunting cabin up in Pittsburgh, New Hampshire, that we would go to frequently when I was a child. It was just a few miles south of the Canadian border, and it was right on First Connecticut Lake. had a view of Mount McGalloway across the lake. It was a very, very rough cabin, but... We loved going there as children. And we spent a lot of time up there as family, as a family. And often, I can remember as a child observing the lake. And as the day wore on, on a a summer day, that lake would get choppier and choppier and choppier. To begin with, it might be some really small waves, but by the end of the day, we're not talking ocean wave size, but... They were significant waves that would be incessantly beating on the shore. There'd be white caps out in the middle of the lake. Driven by the wind, that water would pound the shore. The restless and turbulent waves of the lake became something we could count on as a family and something we actually enjoyed. As the psalmist begins to compose this second psalm, he seems to have in mind a similar picture. The restlessness, the turbulence, the incessant energy that won't stop. But in this case, it isn't waves breaking against a shore. He writes of people and of nations 
trying to break the boundary of God's authority. If Psalm 1 was an instruction for individuals to find their happiness in the instruction of God, then Psalm 2 is the instruction of God for nations, for rulers, for those in authority, and by an argument from greater to lesser, for those under the authority of those in authority. So let's look at this psalm together this morning under four headings. Rebellion, ruler, revelation, and response. Now Psalm 2 is set in a unique place in the psalms. Obviously it's the second one. It complements Psalm 1, which is an introduction to the entire book of psalms, but Psalm 2 is an introduction to the first of five books, or five books of the Psalms. Most of the Psalms in the first book were composed by or about King David. And they focus on the king of God's people. And whomever compiled the Psalms, and we're not actually sure who put them in their final form, but whomever did that set this one here for this purpose to tell us how we should relate to God's King. And that's what we want to discover this morning. So, the psalm begins with a question. Verse 1, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand. The rulers conspire together against the Lord and His Anointed One. And they say, Let's tear off their chains and throw their ropes off of us. So first, we see the rebellion. Nations, peoples, kings, and rulers are raging. They're plotting. They're taking their stand against Yahweh, the God of Israel, and God's chosen one, the anointed king of Israel. Now, historically speaking, that king would have either have been David himself or any one of his descendants. And it's interesting in verse 2 that the same root word is used to describe the people in Psalm 2 as described the blessed man in Psalm 1. While the blessed man of Psalm 1 is meditating or mumbling about the Word of God in delight, in Psalm 2 the nations are plotting or mumbling their plans in rage to overthrow the rule of God. And in fact, not much has changed, has it? We all mumble something to ourselves on a daily basis. So what's the tone of your mumbling? Do you find yourself mumbling in meditation on the truths of God and who He is and what He's done for you? Or do you find yourself mumbling in complaint against the rule of God as worked out in your circumstances, your sorrows, your frustrations. Rebellion against the rule of God goes back all the way to the Garden of Eden. This verse speaks against a common misconception among reasonable people. There's a basic assumption that man at his core is generally good 
Given the right circumstances and enough time, man will eventually get it right, whatever it might be. But the psalmist has a different point of view on the basic internal posture of man. Man at his core is not at rest. And although we're set under the gracious rule of God, we are in constant rebellion against Him. But the question we ought to be asking is why? What's gone wrong between Creator and creation that we are continually in rebellion against God? And the answer to that is because human beings long for autonomy and self-determination. And that goes back ever since Adam and Eve chose autonomy in rebellion against God's gracious instruction in the Garden of Eden. And ever since then, submitting to the authority of God has been viewed as, well, how does the psalm put it? Chains, ropes, bondage, slavery, oppression. And if we're being truthful this morning with ourselves and with one another and with the world around us, then we ought to expect that type of rebellion. We ought to expect rebellion in our own hearts against God, mumbling and complaining about how He has exercised His sovereign authority in our lives or bristling against the instruction of God in His Word. And we ought to expect the incessant energy of the world around us to be rebellious against the gracious authority of God. So rebellion, because we desire autonomy. But notice second, the ruler. Verse 4, the one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord ridicules them. Then he speaks to them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath. And he says, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. So consider this with me for just a moment. If you had the whole world coming against you, like literally, they were seeking you out. They were coming to take you. What might your response be? Perhaps we'd like to think ourselves of a as a sort of Jason Bourne-type character. Smart enough to avoid capture by every intelligence asset in every country in the world. Slipping by every government agency and police force and leading our adversaries in incredible chases that destroy an obscene amount of property in the process. But the reality is, if the whole world was out to get us, that's probably not how we would respond. There would be fear, at the very least. There'd be an instinct of self-preservation and actions taken for that. And maybe there'd be looking to engage in some sort of conciliatory talks. Hey, can, can we work this out, world, if you're trying to come at me? Like, what do I need to do to stop this? So what is God's response when the nations want to throw off His rule? 
Notice there's no observable negative effect for the ruler. None whatsoever. The rebellion is in essence inconsequential to him. And this ruler is so incredibly free, so unaffected personally by the rage of his enemies that he can simply laugh. He laughs in content, contempt rather, in amusement. He's ridiculing the ridiculous. Their machinations and meddling and mumbling, it's entirely appropriately laughable because he sits in the heavens and this ruler does whatever he pleases. And whatever he pleases is right and good. And so grasshoppers might as well object to the elephant trampling through the savanna as the enemies of God do to the sovereign rule of God. But it won't always be ridicule. Verse 5 notes a change from ridicule to wrath. At some unnamed point in the future, those in rebellion against God will face God's wrath and be terrified. Why? Well, the text says because they have set themselves against God to overthrow His rule. But what is God's verbal response to them? You've set yourself against me? Well, I have set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. God had set the Davidic king as king on God's holy mountain. Now, we read of Mount Zion for the first time back when Abraham was told by God to sacrifice his son. He journeyed to, to Mount Zion, and as he prepared to sacrifice his son, his only son, the, the son whom he loved, the text tells us, God stopped his hand and directed him to sacrifice a male goat instead. And Abraham responded, in the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. We'll come back to that in just a moment. Mount Zion became the central location for the worship of God's people Israel for hundreds of years. A place where lambs were slaughtered every day, year after year, to cover the sins of God's people. Mount Zion is a special place. And it is that place which God chose to set his king. So we have rebellion against the rule of God. We have the ruler responding to the ridiculous with ridicule and eventually wrath. But notice third, the revelation. Specifically, it's a revelation, a revealing about something that took place in the past, but also about something that will take place in the future. So in verses 1 through 3, you have the, song, or the nation speaking. The God of heaven has spoken in 4 through 6. And now in 7 through 9, we have the psalmist king speaking. And listen to what he says. He writes, I will declare the decree. He said to me, quote, You are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me. I'll make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. You'll break them with an iron scepter. You will shatter them like pottery. So when it became public 
that David was the king anointed by God. Now, let's pause. You may remember that David was anointed as king years before he actually became king. But when that became public, that was the moment in which it could be said that David was metaphorically begotten by God. He became the son of God metaphorically in that moment. God became his father when he ascended the throne at his coronation. See 2 Samuel chapter 7. In fact, God promises that he will be a father to David's descendants. But notice in this revelation, God promises his chosen king a kingdom that will encompass not just a nation and not just nations, but a kingdom that will encompass the entire earth. And as much as David may be praised for his kingship, we only need to turn to the books of Samuel and Kings and Chronicles to recognize that either David was wrong in understanding what God had said to him, or this kingdom promise wasn't fulfilled to David totally. It awaited a fulfillment beyond David. And while David certainly crushed his enemies in his lifetime, they would return under successive kings. But in this revelation, there's a promise that those in rebellion against God's king would find themselves about as secure as one of your mother's antique pottery vases on a t-ball stand getting ready to be hit with a metal bat. That's how secure the enemies of God were. So the rebellion, the ruler, the revelation. Fourth and finally, the response. The rebellious ones have spoken, the ruler has spoken, the anointed king has spoken, and now the Spirit of God speaks through the psalmist, and he calls for an appropriate response. Look at verse 10. So now, kings, be wise. Receive instruction, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with reverential awe. Rejoice with trembling. Pay homage to the Son, or he will be angry, and you will perish in your rebellion, for his anger may ignite at any moment. All who take refuge in him are happy. So the response called for to the rule of God through God's king is submission. Retracting one's rebellion, knowing its fate, and seeking refuge in the one against whom we have rebelled. But let's face it. We aren't the nation of Israel. There's no Davidic king sitting on a throne on Mount Zion in Jerusalem in whom we can seek refuge. So is this poem, this psalm, simply an archaic bit of ancient Near Eastern poetry? Oh, it's beautiful for sure, and as a piece of literature, it's actually quite stunning. But is, is it as empty as one of Percy Bysshe Shelley's sonnets, Ozymandias. Do you remember that sonnet? Maybe you read it in literature class about 
15 or so years ago, maybe longer. But he writes this, Two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them on the sand, half sunk, a shattered face lies. And on the pedestal, these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. Is Psalm 2 simply a poem like Ozymandias? A king overinflated with himself, daring his enemies to rebel against him, claiming divine decree to rule, who's long since passed off the scene with nothing to show for his existence? It wouldn't be the first time that that had happened in human history, and it certainly wouldn't be the last So have we done our duty, should we say amen, call it a day, and go about the rest of our afternoons? Perhaps. But perhaps there's something so much more going on here. Would you turn with me to Acts chapter 4? Acts chapter 4. As you turn, I want to encourage you to imagine entering a small room where two men are standing at the front and there's a group of individuals listening to them. One of the men is named Peter and one is named John. And they're describing to their friends the harassment they've just received from the religious leaders because they've been preaching about a certain man who was recently crucified in the city. And they're making the claim that he is risen from the grave. So this small group of people gather themselves to pray and look at verse 23. They raised their voices together to God and said, Master, you are the one who made the heaven and the earth, the sea and everything in them. You said through the Holy Spirit, by the mouth of our father David, your servant, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot futile things? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers assemble it together against the Lord and against his Messiah. Note verse 27. For in fact, in this city, both Herod, there's a king, and Pontius Pilate, there's a ruler, with the Gentiles, there are the nations, and the people of Israel, there's a people, Assemble together against your Holy Spirit or Holy Servant Jesus, whom you anointed to do whatever your hand and your will had predestined to take place. So, what are they saying? They're saying that while at one level Psalm 2 is about David and about his descendants. It was intended by the Spirit of God to point far beyond them to great King David's greater son, Jesus. And this Jesus had all the enemies of God amassed against him 2,000 years ago. 
They thought they had overthrown the rule of God because he was hung on a cross, naked, bruised, and bleeding, and dying. And they triumphed over him. And they put him in a grave. And they shut the door. But God's anointed took our enemy's own weapon, death, and he crushed the enemies of his fathers by it, with an iron scepter through death. Jesus, the anointed of God, was willingly giving up his life to be crucified on Mount Zion, the hill of God's holiness, where God's holy wrath was poured out upon the rebellion of mankind, upon his perfect son, and where those lambs had been slaughtered year after year after year after year to cover the sins of God's people, God sent his son as a lamb, as his king, to be crushed by the enemies of God. And all the forces coming against our king are broken by his death and by his resurrection. Even our own rebellion is broken once we see the king as who he is. And this is going to be true of every man and every woman one day in the future. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And Jesus' death opened the way for men and women from every tribe and nation and tongue and people to turn and run to this king, to flee their rebellion and to find their joyful submission and refuge in this king. And what was the point at which it was made public that Jesus was the Son of God, that he was God's anointed king? Well, let's listen in on Paul. Flip forward to Acts 13. Acts chapter 13, verse 32. Paul is preaching. And he says, We ourselves proclaim to you the good news of the promise that was made to our ancestors. God has fulfilled this for us, their children. How? By raising up Jesus. And then what does he do? Where does he go to base that statement on? He goes to Psalm 2. As it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son. Today I have become your father. The eternal son of God, anointed by God, the chosen one, the Messiah, was declared with authority to be the son of God as he really was at a specific point in human history when he was resurrected from the dead, when he crushed his enemies by his life. That moment changed everything. God's king was enthroned. The enemies of God were confounded. And God simply laughed in the heavens. So, friend... What is left for you and I to do but to listen to the Spirit of God speaking right now through Psalm 2? 
Psalm 2 is the instruction of God. We, we heard last week that the happy man, the blessed one, the blessed man delights in the instruction of God. So what is the instruction of God? It is not wisdom to continue in our rebellion. It is the height of folly. The enthroned one may laugh and reply now, but there's coming a day when that response will be one of wrath and no longer ridicule. So what is our appropriate response? First, seek refuge in the sun with appropriate fear. The power of the sovereign God, seated in the heavens, in complete control with absolute authority, absolute power, who is also perfectly just and righteous, will not overlook our rebellion. He cannot. And that fact is appropriately fearsome. But our fear at this point should not lead us to despair, but rather to seek refuge in Him. As one man said, the only place to take refuge from God's wrath is in God Himself through the person of Jesus. Appropriate fear of God moves us towards Him to seek mercy. Moving away from God in fear is actually just more indication that we're rebellion, it, rebelling. It's a flaunting of God's sovereignty and power. It's an attempt to avoid the inevitable result of our rebellion, which is God's wrath. So friend, if you are not a follower of Jesus, if you've not trusted Him, allow the wrath of God that was poured out upon his anointed king be counted for you. Because that was its purpose. Some translations here say, kiss the sun. The translation we read said, pay homage to the sun. It's the idea of honor, giving appropriate honor to the anointed Son of God, the eternal God's anointed King. So run to Him. Seek refuge in Him. Second, seek refuge in the Son with a divine promise. If you've already run to the Son, if you are following Jesus, if you've repented of your sin and sought refuge from the wrath of God against your sin in Jesus, then this Psalm has a divine promise spoken over your life. And what is that promise? Blessed are you. Happy are you. You are highly favored and fortunate. And I know this morning I'm speaking to many individuals who, as the song says, have fled to Jesus for refuge. And the Spirit's intent for this psalm this morning is to confirm the faith that you have already expressed. To confirm, to solidify in your mind that you have hope. And while the world seems in rebellion and seems to be getting away with it, 
And while there's rebellion in your own heart that wants to creep back up over and over and over again and, and in my heart on a daily basis, if we've sought refuge in Jesus, then we are blessed. We are eternally happy. This is wisdom. Even when all the world seems to be going crazy, when the rule of God through Christ is rejected on every side, when false gods and imposter kings and rulers demand our ultimate allegiance, God has set his king on the mountain of his holiness. And eternally happy and divinely blessed are all those who take refuge in him. When I was a kid and we'd be on vacation up at First Connecticut Lake in Pittsburgh, I'd wake up in the early morning hours. My brother and I would sleep out on the porch, be a little chilly. We'd be bundled up with our quilts and just stop and listen. And during the night, those massive waves that had rocked the shore had calmed. And the lake was like a mirror. It's like glass. And it was a beautiful thing, even as an eight or nine-year-old, to see that stillness, to, to hear that peace, to see the calm. Friend, hear wisdom from God today. Turn from your rebellion. Seek refuge in the sun. Seek refuge from your rebellion in the rule of Jesus. That is wisdom. Let's pray. Father, in a few moments, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together in which we are reminded that your wrath justly aimed at us was taken by Jesus and he willingly gave his body to be broken and his blood to be shed so that we could be blessed Father you are so so good to us. Father, would you give us courage to go out into our spheres of influence this week with the message that God has set his king and there is still time to find refuge in him. And God, when the rebellion wakes up in our own heart against your gracious authority, would your spirit bring us back quickly to a place of submission, joyful submission to your goodness and your kindness as expressed in your sovereign will. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.